0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. There have been over 360 of them now, and if this is new to you and you'd like to check out other ones, go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menus. There's quite a few different ways that we have them organized and categorized. This program, this show, is made possible by the support of, through the support of generous listeners and viewers, and we very much appreciate those who have supported it. Uh, If you feel like supporting it, there's a PayPal button on the right-hand side of every page. My guest today is David Newman. David is speaking to us from Philadelphia. He is a musician, but has been a number of other things in his life, and we'll be talking about that. And he has a very interesting story. I read his book, like one and a half times because I read it through, and then I thought, "Wow, this is interesting. I want to read it read it some more again." And so I did. Uh, David has been uh, almost a professional tennis player, almost a lawyer, <laughs>
1: <laughs> almost
0: several things. But these days, he's a full-time professional musician. I guess we could say, uh, but in a spiritual sense, um, in the vein of you know Krishna Das and Wah, and you know people like that. Um, I guess would that be a fair characterization, David?
2: Sounds good to me, Rick yeah, good i think I think your dog agrees,
0: yeah, the dog agrees <laughs> <laughs> dogs outside. If you were in the room we 'd have to interrupt this, but I think we 're just going to go with it. There must be a squirrel on the fence right on <laughs> um, This is not the Oprah show <laughs> so um David. I clipped little bits from your book as I was reading it, and I'll use these as sort of like reminder points of things to ask you, but here's the first thing I clipped. You said, my search for truth began with my very first reflective moment when I was six years old. I looked down at my body and asked, where do I come from? Who am I? You want to start with that?
2: Sure. You know, it's a strange, it's a strange phenomena when I look back into my past and reflect upon those things that stuck. Many things have not, but there are those uh, isolated incidents or moments in my past long ago that never left me, and that was one of them. I remember being in, uh, in my bedroom and just looking, looking down at my leg and thinking, what is this? Where did it, where did I come from? What a, what a great mystery that I find myself sh- here. And I also remember just having no explanation. There it is. There it was.
1: Mm.
2: And by the way, Rick, you know, it's not something that I reflected upon often, though I knew it was in my memory bank. Um, and it jumped back at me when I was writing the book in terms of when I was digging back into my past to s- try to uh, see how, you know, the thread of how my path of self-inquiry how far back it went, and that was the first moment, that was the beginning of it in terms of what I
0: could find. That's neat. A lot of people I talked to came into this life in a really nice state, you know, like they they look back on their childhood and they remember being in unity consciousness or seeing, you know, divine beings and things like that. And then as life kind of, you know, proceeded to kick them this way and that, they they began they began to lose that, sometimes quite painfully. You know, and then by the time I've talked to them, they have somehow rediscovered it, and you know, gotten sure. gotten back on. The, so, did you go through a thing like that where you had this sort of spiritual sense of things when you were very young, and then you lost it?
2: Well, to some degree, I, I don't think I would say I had. I can remember having a spiritual sense of things, but I can remember having a sense of ease. Mm-hmm. And I just, um, my brother invited me over to his house to bring my daughter, who's uh, five years old, to, to look at old family movies that I had never seen. And there was me, at her age, running around in a Superman outfit, climbing trees, and I was reminded of the joy that I embodied at that age.
0: Yeah, yeah. All right, so skipping ahead, your parents were very successful people, your Mother was a, became a judge, right? And yeah. um, and what was it your father did? I forgot.
2: He was a plastic surgeon. Oh, that's
0: right. He was a, he was yeah. a doctor, a surgeon, living in the Philadelphia suburbs. And um, they dragged you in to learn TM when you were a young teenager, uh, right around the time that I happened to be the chairman of the Philadelphia TM Center. But you were out in the suburbs someplace. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Funny coincidence. I, I did that just for a couple of months and then I went over to Switzerland and stayed for a few years. I guess maybe were your parents meditators? Is that why they, they thought to do that?
2: They weren't necessarily meditators. Uh, like everybody else, they were looking for some peace in their lives mm-hmm. and back at that time, which is as we discussed earlier in the early 1970s. Uh, TM was in vogue. Yeah. Every everyone was doing it. Mm-hmm. So um, my parents were into things like psychotherapy and bringing the family to therapy together, and they thought this could be another, you know, uh, tool to just have a harmonious flow within the family. So they took, you know, they took me and my brother. All four of us went to be initiated in TM. Yeah. And and as I wrote in my book, I ended up utilizing that method for some time, but what I distinctly remember was my brother and I just holding back our laughter. <laughs> when, when we watched the videos of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the whole it was just funny to us at that age.
0: Yeah, he was he was often called the giggling guru cuz he'd be giggling a lot and he had this sort of high-pitched voice and it took a little getting used to.
2: Yeah, well maybe maybe that was the purpose. We were giggling too. We I remember us sort of pi- pinching each other to get each other to stop so our parents wouldn't get upset with us. <laughs>
0: yeah, he probably wouldn't have minded. Um yes. So you 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 were into sports. You you became quite a successful tennis player, but you had a bit of a temper. You tended to be the John McEnroe of amateur tennis in your area, as I understand yeah. it. Back then, it was Jimmy Connors. Uh-huh.
2: <laughs> Jimmy Connors was my uh, was my hero.
0: Yeah, yeah. But you were a bit of a powder keg, throwing rackets and swearing and freaking out. But I was. <laughs> what's what snapped you out of the tennis phase? I forget.
2: Uh, being thirteen and having a bar mitzvah, and my uncle Mark, being a bluegrass musician, now lawyer slash bluegrass musician. <laughs> Uh, dropping an electric guitar into my hands Ah. and uh, I I had, even when I played tennis, I strummed my tennis racket Ah. but then when I actually had a guitar and started playing that, I put the tennis racket down and that was pretty much the end of it.
0: Yeah, Yeah. interesting. Still like bluegrass? You probably like all kinds of music. I like all kinds of music but I do
2: and then I go see him play when when he plays in the area.
0: That's great. Yeah, Nickel Creek, Alison Krauss, I love those people.
2: Yeah, Alison Krauss, that's, one of my, that's my wife's favorite.
0: Okay, then, let's see what happened. Then somehow or other, I guess you figured you weren't going to make it professionally as a musician, or maybe you thought you would, but you, you, you thought law school might be a good thing to have under your belt as well.
2: Yeah, you know, that phase after I finished college, I went to Los Angeles to be uh, as an aspiring songwriter, Mm -hmm. ended up working in the music industry on the other side as a music publisher for a few years, and then looked at myself and my future and thought I didn't want to end up a music industry executive uh, living in Los Angeles when I was this age. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, you know, what's the next move? And I just decided that it it was to, to go to law school.
0: And you actually sort of enjoyed that?
2: To some degree. I was just telling somebody recently the first year was terrifying, the second year less, and the third year was loads of fun. So, yeah, I I enjoyed the experience of law school, partially because um, it really engaged a certain mental process, which it continues to serve me. And it was through law school, through the stress of law school, that I found yoga and Mm -hmm. intensified my yoga practice. So Mm -hmm. I I lived in New York City at that time, and I look upon those memories fondly.
0: That's great. I mean, it's a tribute to your flexibility or something, I would say. Because, I mean, if I I ever read a a legal document of any kind, my eyes glaze over within about 30 seconds. (laughs) And, uh, you know, being able to actually get through law school, I always marvel at people who could do a thing like that.
2: Yeah, I, was, uh, I, I look back and ask myself the same question, and that is, how did I do that? <laughs> right? I remember uh, seeing an interview with Bob Dylan talking about his early material songs that he wrote, and it, this was later in his life. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, those songs I wrote back then, I can't do that now. Right. I could do it then, but I don't have the wherewithal. I kind of feel that way now. If you threw me in a law school class, you know, in my current incarnation, it would be tough
0: yeah it 's funny if you were into Vedic astrology they they talk which I am only very tangentially i don 't really understand it, but they talk about very different phases that one might go through in life, according to you know how the planets are configured and so on and It, it is interesting to see sometimes in the hands of someone who really knows what they 're doing that uh, you know some big shift in a person happens in a person 's life and or they might even predict it ahead of time. They say, "Well, you know, January of 2017, you're going into such and such, and don't expect you know don't expect things to be the same thereafter." And sure enough, big changes take place. We can kind of go through different incarnations within one incarnation.
2: Yeah, my nephew's now a Jyotish Vedic astrologer, and uh, they're, they're called dashas and and I I shifted into my Venus Dasha, yeah. which which is good for what I do in it, terms it is, of yeah. music. But yeah, very much so.
0: That's cool. And and the reason I'm going through all this stuff is that, um, you know, some people might say, all right, well, let's get to the meat of it. Where's the spiritual awakening story? But I I, I always feel like it's sort of good to give a background of the person's life in most cases, because people, in some cases, tend to um, put people who've had spiritual awakenings on a pedestal of some sort and say, well, that's fine for them, but I'm just a ordinary schmuck, you know, and it couldn't happen to me. And part of my initial motivation in in starting this show was to show, to demonstrate, to display that spiritual awakenings happen to all kinds of people who live ordinary lives. And so we're just kind of going through some of the ordinary stuff here as to lay a foundation for what happened next.
2: I appreciate that, and that's why I included it in my book for the exact same reason and as a as a note, one just becomes an awakened ordinary schmuck, so I just felt <laughs> like I'd add that in there, <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah
0: okay, um so let's see. you went to law school and then uh then you had this big thing in two thousand ten, hit by a lightning bolt vision of your own absence, terrifying inner visions um, was that you I guess you had already been doing some spiritual practice by that point, right um Yoga. You'd, you actually became a yoga teacher of some sort.
2: Yeah, for many years I, mm-hmm. I had opened a yoga school in Philadelphia in 1992. Oh, I had really? been teaching so 18, eighteen
0: years before that. Then
2: eighteen years, and I had been traveling singing kirtan since about 2003. So mm-hmm. for seven years, maybe even a little prior to that. So mm-hmm. um, I wasn't new to the path when that came upon me, so mm-hmm. to speak.
0: Is there an interesting story around how you came to be a traveling kirtan singer?
2: Well, I don't know if it's interesting, but I'll share it. Sure. Um, I, I was uh, teaching yoga and operating a yoga center, and um, I was exposed to the uh, Kirtanwala's who had been with Neem Karoli Baba, uh, like Bhagavan, Bhagavan Das, Krishna Das, Krishnadas, Tal, and years before I had been exposed to Kirtan in law school, I had gone to Kripalu, Amartya Sai, I had gotten Shaktipat from from, uh, Guru Mai in South Fallsburg where they sang kirtan. I had been exposed to it. But when I was uh, operating my yoga center, I had the opportunity to bring these sort of current modern day Western kirtan singers to offer programs. And so I was exposed to them. And as a result, it, it, it became clear to me that as a spiritual seeker and as a musician, this was, you know, a meaningful possibility for me. Yeah. And then several years later, I had a visitation, uh, you know, from their guru who became my guru on the inner planes named Karoli Baba. Mm. And as a result of that relationship, there was just a lot of grace in my life that translated as, uh, as musical Inspiration and an orientation towards singing kirtan, and soon after that experience, I found myself devoting more and more of my life to chanting, to writing music, and before I knew it, I started recording and traveling, and you know, and here I am.
0: Nice. Let's talk yeah. about that visitation. Hmm. Yeah, I um,
2: was uh, moving into a new apartment, and I had always been. As someone who loved learning about the great saints, particularly the Indian saints, and I used to love gazing at their pictures as a spiritual practice, reading uh, biographies about them and just holding the pages open of their images and gazing at them. And so when I was n- moving into a new place, I asked my sister-in-law, who's an artist, to paint me a painting of any one of those gurus because I didn't feel like you know, I had a guru at that point. So she came over to my apartment, leafed through all the books. There were a stack of books on my dresser. She opened, as she was going through the book, she picked up Miracle of Love. She opened the page to a smiling image of Neem Karoli Baba, turned to me and said, I've never seen a face that embodies this much joy. I have to paint this being's face. Um, So, many months went by, and uh, I would hear from her time, you know, every now and then, and she would tell me about all these miraculous moments she was having painting this painting. And when I finally saw the painting, I was astounded at how big and beautiful and colorful and vibrant. I remember looking at it for the first time and thinking that it was made of nectar as opposed to paint. And I took it home, and I put it on my wall, and I went into meditation and he came to me for the first time with these words i manifested this painting for you because i want to be this big in your life and and from then on in the the waters parted and i was began to really walk the path of bhakti yoga and for those who are watching there's the painting
0: oh, we can see it even without you moving <laughs> okay it's <laughs> okay, sitting good. there on your shoulder like a <laughs> right, giant right. giant cosmic parrot yeah exactly <laughs> um and
2: so the nature of the relationship has changed. you know his form used to be more important to me than it is now now it's in a, a sort of a, in essence inner connection um but it it was through his guidance that i've i've you know become a singer of kirtan and, and a musician That's nice. it, it wasn't. Music was something I always loved, Rick, but at that particular point in my life, when that, when that tidal wave of inspiration came, it was a great surprise to me because I, I didn't um, consciously decide that I was going to pursue this path. It was one of those moments in life where it felt that this path pursued me.
0: Yeah, I love those things. Um, me too. Yeah. It's like if life is blessed, as many of our lives are, it's like you couldn't have designed it this well, you know. If, you'd, if you if had had to make all the choices, you would have made all kinds of wrong choices and ended up doing something far inferior. But it's sort of like nature knows best, in a way, how to organize. And if you somehow manage to surrender to that, then it, wonderful things can happen.
2: Yeah, I feel that, you know, back then I was in my early 30s. Now I'm in my early 50s, and it's nice to have those demonstrations, you know, for for now when I'm reminded by letting go and allowing that intelligence to live my life rather than, you know, me doing it from here. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: What do you make of the whole visitation thing? I've heard so many stories, many, many from people I've interviewed, of visitations such as you had where Neem Karoli Baba or um, Ramana Maharshi or… Um, I don't know, various Buddhist sages or something will, will come to people and, you know, clear as a bell, it doesn't seem to be imaginary, it wasn't anticipated, it wasn't conjured up like they were trying to have a vision or something, just all of a sudden, bang. Uh, there it is. Sometimes yeah. wide open, eyes wide open walking down the street, they'll have some such thing. Sure. And so what do, you, what do you think is really going on with that?
2: It's such a great mystery during that time of my development when Im Crowley Baba came to me they they were happening all the time in meditations and dreams with him um, with him yeah. since then the nature of those visitations for the most part doesn't happen in that way um, but, you know, his presence and how a being who's not embodied can, you know, visit somebody living outside Philadelphia, you know, <laughs> uh, in the 1990s, you know, I, I have no rational explanation for it, but for there's some perhaps, you know, again, using the best words I can, there's some karmic connection there. And at a certain part in a person's development, that's the medicine that they need is some sort of a, a, a direct communion so to speak. And, and back then, that was really important to me. I don't think I would have gotten it any other way.
0: What is it W.C. Fields has on his tombstone? I think it's All Things Considered, I'd rather be in Philadelphia.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly, right.
0: <laughs> uh-huh. okay. um, so, I suppose you can only but, speculate, I could only speculate, but do you think that you know, someone like Neem Curly Baba, or Jesus for that matter, who many people have visions of, or all, all these others, Ramana Maharshi, do you think that they have Sort of assume the role of an ascended master, and that their essence, who they actually were in some relative sense, is still dwelling on some in some realm and intercedes in human affairs, or do you think there's some other mechanics to this this thing I,
2: I, I would speculate similarly as you just did, and for me, you know that that story of Neem Kurali Baba when he was embodied, living you know in northern India people would travel from all over the world and they would say maharaji you know how do i get enlightened and his response was not what they wanted to hear his response was pretty much always serve people and feed people and then he would say jao which means okay time to leave and so for me at least you know my translation of of why a great being would would want to impress upon another soul in that way is that they have an agenda and the agenda is to you know relieve the suffering of humanity and that somehow they 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 know which strings and buttons to push in terms of energizing souls like myself to be of the greatest possible service within the course of say my lifetime
1: Mm -hmm.
2: that would be my understanding
1: of it yeah
0: so you're implying that they actually, rather than melting into the absolute, like a drop of water into the ocean, they, they retain some sort of functional existence on some subtle realm and, and help to guide the course of human events from there. Is that what you're saying?
2: My sense is yes. Yeah. Exactly.
0: Okay. So, that may bring us to, you know, skipping over lots of little details, but that may bring us to the 2010 lightning bolt. Sure. Let's talk about that. Well,
2: I remember distinctly, again, as I mentioned, I had been singing, you know, traveling singing kirtan for seven or eight years at that point. Most of my unitive uh, moments happened within the realm of bhakti and kirtan, which is situated, which is kind of a dualistic practice in the sense that one expresses his or her her devotion for, for the greater whole in a particular form, and much of my unitive experiences happened in the realm of a kirtan through joy and sometimes even bliss. And so I was totally unprepared for something that that, that shattered me in this way, because the, the, the unitive moment uh, that arose one evening, I got up out of bed, I walked a few feet into the bathroom, and then bam, it hit me. It shattered me because it it was a a unitive expression that was the total opposite of joy. You know, it was terrorizing. At least that was how I responded to it because it it appeared that everything I knew to be real was ephemeral and a a dreamlike illusion. And everything that was in my realm of existence was there except there was no focal point and there was no me. And not only was it terrifying in the moment, but it instigated a kind of unraveling in which I went through months of very difficult uh, very difficult experiences it was it was you know it, it i mean it kind of went on for three years, but the first six months and in particular the first three months were extremely difficult to the point where it was hard for me even to function. Mm. It shook something loose in me.
0: The actual lightning bolt. Like most lightning bolts, was very brief, right? I mean, it was just a few seconds, maybe. But then somehow, at the most, yeah. But then something gotcha. got uncorked, or <laughs> set, yeah, loosened up, or something.
2: Exactly, and, and and again, sort of being a bhakta, that you know, this was this was out of my realm of experience. It it completely took me by surprise.
0: Yeah. In retrospect, now, you know, having really gone through it all and, and gotten out of the difficult phase of it, what do you understand the mechanics to have been of exactly what happened to you then?
2: The way I, I describe it is that what was revealed to me was my own, for lack of a better phrase, non-existent in relationship to the whole. And whatever egocentric separative mechanism was in place was horrified by it because it was it, what was required of it was a, a a complete unraveling but at that moment it wasn't you know it it didn't have the wherewithal the impulse the desire or the willingness to let go and so uh, you know it was 3 years before before the awakening took place so what i often say is it took me 3 years to relax into or integrate a moment a moment of truth
0: i would say that 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 moment of truth, that lightning bolt, um, precipitated uh, a house-cleaning phase where you yeah. know, a lot of stuff had to be cleared out in order for more, a more mature awakening to dawn. Would you agree?
2: Most definitely, yeah.
0: yeah. And I mean, if we were into sort of an understanding of subtle physiology and chakras and nadis and all that stuff, you know, it, it might possibly be explainable in those terms that there was some energetic shift on some subtle level and then, you know, some chakra waking up or something, and then all kinds of purification had to take place for the physiology to really adapt to that newfound level of um, functioning. Yeah,
2: exactly. And some would call it, a, you know, a Kundalini awakening. For whatever reason, those words, you know, ha- have never sort of been at the top of my list for describing it. But mm-hmm. it's very well um, a, a relevant description because certainly there was like a a pipe cleaning feeling where things were just had to be cleaned and cleared out.
0: Yeah, you no. Know, mm-hmm. A lot of people go through stuff like this, and it's and it's good for them to hear stories like this. Sometimes it's much, much more dramatic and severe and scary than anything you went through. Actually, some people are really, really incapacitated for years at a time, and um, so.
2: I met I met a woman in New York City who went through what I went through in a few months over the course of twenty years.
0: In other words, she it dragged on for twenty years for her. Twenty. Yeah. Yeah and people get in touch with me from time to time who are are really going through it. And I wish there were um, a better understanding of this kind of thing in the helping professions, uh, you know, like spiritual psychologists, so to speak, who could, you know, really appreciate what people are going through and not necessarily just reach for the Thorazine, but really help people through and facilitate and smooth out these dark nights of the soul. Very much,
2: Rick. And you know, when I travel and give workshops, I always speak about this phase of my development you know, as as a means to let people know that there's nothing wrong; they're not going crazy. That this is, you know, part of their journey. And people are often so relieved to hear that. Just to hear me share what I went through is meaningful to them.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, it comes up often in these interviews, and I I just feel concern for people who are going through that stuff some of whom even express you know suicidal tendencies and so on just because it's so unbearable and um, I really wish that the the helping professions understood this better we'll probably move into a phase in our society where they do mature into more effectiveness in dealing with such things but it's it's really in its infancy still I think
2: I agree very much so and I, so much of what I feel in relationship to this Part of my life is that the, that the support that I needed showed up for me, and I know that's not always the case. I, I was on tour with a child psycholo- a, a psychiatrist, uh, a woman who was married to the man we were staying with, who, who was telling me when 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 teens come in now there is there is no talk therapy; they just go right to medication, and that yeah. that really that made my heart heavy.
0: Yeah, and when you read the about the percentage of young people that are medicated in various ways, it's it's scary, you know, it's, it's like the drug profession is making a, a, a killing, but, you know, it's at what cost to the youth. Absolutely. And, of course, you, you know, I don't mean to imply that all sort of psychological disturbances and whatnot are, are some kind of spiritual Of course. You know, thing, I mean, probably majority of them are not, but it would be and nice. And
2: some, some of them have a spiritual component
0: as well Yeah.
2: could be helpful in terms of responding to the whole picture.
0: Yeah. Another thing that's worth mentioning, it's a little bit tangential, but, you know, meditation, TM and other kinds of meditation are are being used in schools and prisons and places like that where there's a lot of stress and a lot of trouble, and sometimes with dramatically beneficial effects. So it's nice to see that happening. Very much so. Yeah. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to move through, so, so this whole roughness period you experienced after that thing, which lasted about three years, tell us about some of the details of that roughness without dragging it out too much. But you were you know, you're yeah. having these terrifying thoughts and felt, felt negative things, felt, wanted to kill people or something, I mean, what was wrong? Yeah.
2: yeah, that's exactly right. I just saw myself doing these heinous things, really really troubling visions, and the inquiry was could I do such a thing, it scared yeah. me to the very core. I was so shaken up. the 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 depth of these arisings was quite dramatic. Just the days following that moment, and so I didn't know what to do. I mean, I could I could hardly function. I was just lying down, shaking, and just breathing through the intensity of of these visions. And so um, I just had an idea to call a dear friend and mentor of mine, somebody who's been on your show. Uh, that is Bruce Rubin. Oh yeah. And uh, I had heard him mention somebody who he knew, this man named Bart Marshall. Was
0: we'll uh, on my
2: show. <laughs> yeah, an in, in awakened being. And I, his name just kept popping up in my mind just mm-hmm. get in touch with Bart Marshall. And so I called Bruce and I said, Bruce, I've just had this really traumatic internal experience and I'm really in need of support. Could you put me together with Bart? And it just so happened, Rick, that uh, like less than a week after this took place, I was set to go on tour down south in North Carolina and Tennessee and Georgia. And uh, Bruce brought it to my attention that Bart lived in Raleigh, North Carolina, which was one of my stops on the tour. And so Bart came to my uh, concert that night and then we walked back to my cabin and uh, he was my lifeline. He recognized what was happening within me, reflected it back to me fearlessly and just became that person to guide me one of the people to guide me through this tunnel
0: yeah it was kind of delightful reading your book and reading about all these people that i've interviewed that yeah, uh, right. that, that were instrumental in your life paul hederman and gary Weber Webber. and yep. you know all yep. these people it's yep. like we're one little family in a way
2: yeah it was like you know spirit just brought this little team together you know it was yeah. paul hederman bruce rubin bart marshall gary Weber. It was just a team that 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 showed up to kind of you know birth me through this process, and uh, it's incredible. One of the things I want to mention, Rick, that you know in the Bhakti path, you know, uh, self inquiry is isn't sort of say the main the main entree in that path, Mm -hmm. and certainly non duality or Advaita was just you know way over there, and so um, you know when this when this shock to my system came forward, it, it, it thrust me into spontaneous self-inquiry. You know, it wasn't as if I said, I'm going to go to a satsang, or I'm going to, you know, read a book by Nasargadat Maharaj. I mean, it, that just was completely not part not part of my paradigm. You know, I was singing to Krishna, and Radha, and Sita, and Ram, and Durga, and Hanuman. And so when, when this came forward, I had this clear vision of who I wasn't. And so the the inquiry just arose. And that is if if I'm not who I thought I was, then who am I? And it was completely not premeditated. It was just not part of my path at that point. Yeah. But it was like, you know, here was one side of the coin which is Bhakti Yoga. And let's say here was the other side of the coin which is jnana yoga, you know. Mm -hmm. And it was just, you know, I was focused here. And then Grace just went, okay, now we're going to look at this.
0: I want to talk to you about the whole Bhakti versus, you know, Jnana thing. That's a whole topic we can discuss. But since we've just been talking about you you getting through a very difficult period, maybe this would be a good chance to, a good point at which to insert a song. We're going to, for those listening, um, we're going to insert two or three different music videos of David's during this interview. For those who are listening live, you won't see them but uh, in the final thing after post-production. We'll have them in there. I was thinking maybe this would be a good point at which to insert Stay Strong um, and you could introduce it by telling us a little, little bit about it.
2: Yeah, that's a great idea, Rick. Uh, stay Strong is a song, one of the three or four songs that were given to me in my sleep. Yeah. I wish they all came in my sleep, but they don't. Huh. This one did, I was ye- at Omega.
1: <laughs> ye- yesterday <laughs>
0: came to Paul McCartney in his sleep and uh, yeah. at, at first he was, he was naming it something like scrambled eggs or ham yeah, and eggs I, or something. <laughs> right. I,
2: I, I actually heard that yeah. and I, I didn't have any lyrics for it, I just had the melody and the sort of energy of the song. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was at Omega Institute for a weekend with my wife didn't have a daughter at that time and the song came to me and I literally ran into the bathroom with my phone sang it into my phone and then over the course of the next few days started to put words to it which eventually became stay strong keep your faith alive Mm. and um, what I've ultimately found is the songs that come to me in my sleep somehow there is some intelligence that wants me to do something special with those songs. I just had one recently. So when I wrote this song, I had this idea. And the idea was, what if we did a kind of, you know, we are the world type video, but instead of this, you know, Stevie Wonders and uh, Elton John's of the world, we bring together all the Kirtan singers and devotional musicians. And we we do something together in that way. That was right at the time where there was the, the, the big... Gulf oil spill. It wasn't a spill. It was when there was a puncture and, and the oil was leaking into the Gulf. Mm-hmm. And I had been introduced to the COO um, from Global Green USA, which is an environmental organization that was working on that cleanup down in New Orleans. And so I just all these, you know, I just had all these messages and, and all these dots came together. So I decided to uh, invite many different singers like Krisha Das and Jai Uttal and Donna DeLore and Wah to name a few. We were all going to be at this festival called Bhakti Fest. So um, we set up a makeshift recording studio and a film studio in our cabin at Bhakti Fest. And we had everybody come in. I recorded the song in Philadelphia, brought the tracks to Joshua Tree and had everybody come in. We filmed everybody singing their parts and then in post-production put it all together. And then released the song, Stay Strong, and, and this collaborative video, and then we donated all the proceeds to Global Green to help clean up uh, uh, you know, New Orleans and the Gulf region. And it was an absolutely graced project, and it's one of those projects that I continue to this day to get emails and messages on YouTube that it uplifted someone's day.
0: Great. So let's play it. So that was great. I love that song. It was, it was very inspiring. I love that We Are The World. There, there's another one. It wasn't We Are The World. It was one that you can There's several versions of it. Uh, they've, they've done a number of songs where they have people all over the world in Africa and yeah. India and adding in. What are those called? Oh, Something For Change? Yeah, something Playing For uh, Change.
2: Playing For Change, yeah. Those are great. That- And there was also that uh, film, uh, One Giant Leap, I think, that has a similar kind of approach. You haven't seen that?
0: Yeah, if people haven't seen, well, those are two things to Google then. If you haven't seen the Playing for Change songs, you you might love them. Okay, so we were talking about bhakti versus self-inquiry versus the kind of oneness or non-duality thing. And uh, as I understand it, this has actually been a... Debate or point of contention in some people's minds going back thousands of years. You know, the the sort of those who wish to stay separate from God in order to worship God and those who wish to just merge and become one. Who was it that said, I'd rather be sugar than, I'd rather taste sugar than be sugar?
2: Ramakrishna.
0: Ramakrishna.
2: Yeah, that's um, yeah, a great quote. Yeah. yeah.
0: And, and Maharshi Mahesh Yogi actually commented that, on that once. He said, it's really none of our business. It's really up to the person for whom it actually becomes a relevant issue <laughs> at that point. Sure. They, they can decide.
1: <laughs>
0: so That's both, great. in his mind, at least, both options were viable. But come to think of it, you know, I've never actually heard a story of a, a respected non-dual sage, um, such as Shankara or Ramana Maharshi or... Nisargadatta, who wasn't also devotional.
2: A bhakti, yeah.
0: Yeah. So it's not an either or choice, really.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I just have this funny image when you said bhakti versus gyana. I just saw like a boxing ring and, you know, gyana in one corner and bhakti in the other <laughs> corner.
1: Who's going to win? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I. I
2: you know, for me, it's not a versus thing. It's, uh, you know, I, again, I, I sort of describe them being two sides of the same coin. There's a great quote I like to use in relationship to this, this dialogue. And that is at the end of the Ramayana, when Hanuman is uh, sitting in front of Lord Rama on, on one knee. And Rama says to Hanuman, who are you? And Hanuman says, when I forget myself, I am your servant. When I remember myself, I am you. For me, um, there, there certainly has not been, as a result of the shift that took place in my being, any kind of tension between my devotional nature and my oneness with with the greater whole. It's uh, they they just seem to be perfectly integrated in some in some way. And interestingly, when I wrote my book, The Timebound Traveler, my editor at Non Duality Press was somebody who had been a bhajan singer and whose teacher had said okay stop singing bhajans and now i want you to to study advaita and then she had a non-dual awakening Mm -hmm. and when i started working with her she told me that she was had always hoped that somebody would come along with a book that somehow integrated those two paths so she was really excited to work with me and on the back cover of the book, she ultimately felt that the timebound traveler would be a book that would help people heal those two those two uh, orientations or parts of themselves. so in a lot of way, when rick when i when I presented that book, it was much more focused on my non dual awakening than than my bhakti path and one of her comments was, "Hey david, I, I appreciate your story about your awakening, but I want more bhakti." <laughs> you know and so the book kind of became this dance between those you know between that sense of and it, and if you look at some of the real sort of i don't know fundamental bhakti paths the notion of merging is a total no-no and, and perhaps in the advaita paths i don't know perhaps the the notion of maintaining a sense of separation to experience the the the, the sweetness of devotion is is a no-no but these these two parts of creation are constantly playing themselves out in my world and in my life, you know.
0: Mm. Shankara said, the intellect imagines duality for the sake of devotion. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. And you know, that, that uh, I believe was a Rumi who said, you know, seek the beloved your whole life knowing that the beloved is within you.
1: Mm.
2: You know, and, and there is. It's like, a, you know, it, its it's a non-answerable... Uh, dynamic tension—the fact that we can experience ourselves as one and also as dual—and for me, that's it's a great mystery and it's also a great joy.
0: Do you happen to remember that Nassar Gadada quote?
2: It's in my book, actually.
0: Yeah. I think so On one
2: side there is this, and on the other side there's this, and my whole life swings between those two. Is that the yeah, one? Yeah, that's
0: the one. Yeah. I don't have it memorized. So I don't want to. Most people have probably heard it, but it basically speaks to this point of. You know, there's, there's really no conflict or irre, irre, irreconcilable paradox between oneness and devotion to God and so on. They're just sort of different dimensions of a larger perspective that one can play within if if one has that capacity developed.
2: Yeah, you know that story when a student of Nasargadab Maharaj says, you know, you're awakened, you're enlightened, why do you every morning light a candle to your Guru. I mean, what's, what's the point of lighting a candle, you know, a light to his image? And his response was, I can't come up with a reason not to. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. And Papaji, when he was quite old and becoming infirm, physically lamented the fact that he was incapable of prostrating himself fully on the floor in front of, the, you know, the picture of Ramana Maharshi in, in his mm. room.
2: Yeah, in my own life, Rick, you know, there's there there there's you know moments when you know that duality is just not present for me, and then there's difficult moments where I call out to Neem Karoly Bob and say, "Hey, please, you know, I need some guidance here. Which direction to go? You know, the relationship is still intact in the same way that a child leaves the home of his or her parent, but the, the relationship is still intact and the respect is still intact."
0: Yeah. You know, I think one, one way of looking at it and understanding it is that we have different faculties, we have different organs so of experience, so to speak. We have the intellect, we have the heart, we have the senses, we have all these different things. And like if you take the example of a lawyer, let's say, since you went to law school, you know, when he's in his law office working all day, he's probably not using his heart too much. He's sure. using his intellect. When he comes home and starts playing with his young children, you know all his law training goes out the window, and he's just becomes more childlike he's in his heart, so it's just sort of different faculties are are, in, are become come to the foreground according to the circumstances
2: yeah I, I resonate with that, and I think there's great joy in you know pretending to be separate. I mean, we couldn't be having this dialogue if if we weren't.
0: Couldn't stick a spoon in our mouth if we didn't have some sense of <laughs>
1: distinction. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> and I think, you know, these sages like Shankar, when he said, you know, the intellect imagines duality for the sake of devotion, what he was implying is that there's something really sweet about devotion, something really worth experiencing and not to be missed. And that you know, without it, the realization might be rather dry.
2: Most definitely. Uh, it's certainly, awakening wasn't what I, what I thought it would be prior to as a seeker. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, for me, uh, the the non-attachment has given rise to a much richer experience of my humanity, my mm-hmm. feelings, my senses, everything.
0: Okay, so you just alluded to your awakening. So let's get back to that. You you had this lightning bolt in 2010, then three years later, that I don't know if that I, I seem to recall you said it wasn't a, something you could have marked on the calendar, but you, you oozed into a much more um, resolved state that you would refer to as awakened.
2: It was definitely a moment of time. I remember oh, okay. being yeah. It was a moment in time, but it was affirmed in some. You know unusual way for me um, which i'll I'll share with you, mm-hmm. but I was really toward the end of that three years, I was really plagued by a tremendous fiery desire to drop the old self, you know it was like uh, it had become like listening to nails scratching on a chalkboard all the time, mm. and um I was carrying around with me this 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 sense of false identity, but I couldn't shake it. And um, that brought about a kind of a tremendous pressure within my being, not, not the kind of terrorizing, fear-based, monumental, intense manifestations of earlier in the journey. This was just a weight that I was car- carrying around with me that just I felt tremendously burdened and frustrated. And so um, I remember in the last week of this particular part of my journey calling Bart Marshall on the phone. And I said, Bart, I just, I don't think I can take this anymore. I just want it so bad. I want to let go so bad. I want to be birthed into this new consciousness so bad, you know. However, I know that the desire for it and the wanting of it is the very thing that's preventing me from it. I felt like I was in this catch-22 where there, there, there's two parts of myself that were just grinding against each other painfully. And when I communicated to Bart how much I wanted this, I'll never forget this. And I wrote this in my book. He so sweetly responded by saying, very simply, you can't help but want it. You know, you want it until you don't want it was the message I took. And so I just kind of, you know, felt that the intensity of the desire would just sort of progressively dwindle off to the point where you know the the awakening itself revealed itself and that the the wanting sort of trickled off but in the heat of of my desire for it and this probably happened i'm speculating now less than a week after that conversation with bart i was just walking down the street after after lunch with my wife and my mother-in-law and it just changed
0: just poof
2: poof the intensity of the heaviness and the burden and uh, the, the looking for it just went away. It was gone. It was, I looked to my left, gone. Looked to my right, gone. It just it wasn't, you know, the, the, what I was carrying was not there anymore. Yeah. And I always say it was a moment of grace because there, I realized at the end that there was nothing I there was no effort I could make. There was, there was no strategy I could come up with. Um, there was no dial I could turn to make it happen. There was some intelligence that at that moment said, "Okay, it's, it's take it, go on."
0: Another chakra popped.
2: Another chakra popped, and so, but but the the, the post, uh, I guess, if you want to use the word affirmation, that came. This was uh, a few days later. <clears throat> Bruce Rubin and I had had the idea to to create this musical together called Awakened. And uh, I, so I drove up to his house in upstate New York along with this uh, Broadway producer, this man named Nick Demos, who had done a Broadway show called Memphis. And the three of us were at Bruce's house having a conversation about the musical. And I, I, I guess from Bruce's perspective, I was just communicating uh, some of the ideas about the musical from a very personal perspective. And it was just this very incredibly subtle moment where Bruce had a pad and paper and he was re- We were all writing down ideas for this musical and he just lowered his chin. He had his reading glasses off and he pulled them down and he looked up at me and he said, did something happen to you? Mm. And, and then I just responded simply, yes. And at that moment, whatever had shifted
0: just for lack of a better description, locked into place. Incidentally, for those who may not know this, Bruce, um, whom I interviewed a year or so ago, was the screenwriter for the movie Ghost with you know, Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore and uh, a number of other movies, but he was best known for Ghost. Yeah, I just want to comment about the intensity of desire thing. You know, the, A lot of sages, I think Ananda Moima said this and many others actually have said it, that the desire for God is itself the way to God. So I think a lot of respected authorities don't devalue uh, or dismiss um, or in any way say there's anything wrong with having an intense desire for realization. I mean, think of the Buddha, he was like enlightenment or bust, you know, and a lot of people, if you read their spiritual biographies, have this burning desire for enlightenment. In fact, Patanjali in the Yoga Sutras talks about yogis having mild, medium or intense uh, desire for realization, and he said the yogis who have the most mm-hmm. vehement intensity, he would consider them the best off in terms of their, their likelihood of, of awakening. So I know in some uh, it, circles this, yeah. is, this is sort of put down or dismissed, but I would disagree.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it, it was just so so intensely painful that I wanted to shake it off. It just kind of felt like unrequited love, you know? Yeah. Uh, why won't this person pay attention to me? It had that quality to it. And my intensity desire for it definitely as a result of that lightning bolt, you know, that's when it got turbocharged. There were times when it felt like because I had seen the truth, that I was that that I was I just had so much fear around it that I was just living with a phantom around me. Because what I had believed to be concrete was now revealed as being ephemeral, but I kept it around anyway. And um, that was a great challenge. I felt like death was just looking over my shoulder at all times.
0: Hmm. Death of the ego, perhaps.
2: Death of the ego is what it yeah. yeah, what yeah. It. I finished my book with Rick with that quote by Joseph Campbell says the thing in the dark cave that we fear the most ultimately brings us the greatest reward, and 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 it, within those three years, that's how I characterize that three-year journey.
0: I often think of um, breaking the sound barrier as a good metaphor for awakening. If if you read the right stuff, by whoever wrote that when Chuck Yeager first broke the sound barrier, they didn't really know what was going to happen when somebody broke the sound barrier. And so he was flying this, you know, this test plane, and as he approached the sound barrier, it's like there was a lot of turbulence and the stick was jiggling in his hand, you know, as he was trying to fly the plane. And all of a sudden, and then when he finally broke through, it was like, ah, it just became smooth. So there's like this sort of intensity (laughs) and turbulence that builds up just prior to major spiritual breakthroughs, it seems.
2: And that said, it's, it's non, what's the word, um, once you break the sound barrier, it's, it's just not a big deal.
1: Yeah.
2: It's, it's not the big deal that the ego had made it prior to. Yeah. It, it would be like waking up in the morning and saying, oh my God, I've woken up. You just wake up and that's that. It's sort of nondescript in that way.
0: Right, so it's natural. It's it's not like you're walking around with your jaw hanging open all the time at the amazingness of it, right?
2: Well, you're walking around at your jaw dropping, jaw dropped in terms of the uh, the relief. Yeah, yeah, that's what you're amazed at.
0: But that's another thing is that we acclimate. Yeah. In- initially, there can be this huge relief, huge bliss, everything else, and then after a while, it's like you get used to it. You know, you know, it's
2: definitely, definitely.
0: I've heard Zen masters and all talk about many degrees of awakening that are possible and that people go through and so on, and I'm not really in a position to categorize them all, but I think that that's a kind of a universal experience of acclimatization, you know, getting used to things. In the state that we normally function in now, it may seem to be ordinary and we're accustomed to it, but if we were to somehow shift to this from where we were 30 years ago, it would be like incredible bliss. Yeah, you know, right. So hardly right. Able, we wouldn't be able to walk.
2: Yeah, and, that's, that's really interesting to think about it that way. I never quite have, but yeah. that's cool.
0: yeah. And if we, and conversely, if we were to shift from this to where we were 30 years ago, it would be in agony. Even though 30 years ago we were okay, you know. It was, yeah. It was fine. Yeah.
1: <laughs> right. Right.
0: Back then we were fine. Right. So it's it's sort of a, a grace of God kind of thing that we we, we grow accustomed to whatever Very- state we're in. Very much so. And yeah. Life wouldn't be livable otherwise. And
2: I feel like, you know, that the shift that took place, I even now hesitate to call it whatever, whether it's awakening or enlightenment, um, it definitely something changed in a significant foundational way, and now there's a different kind of an evolution taking place, but it's, it's not colored by seeking.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, what you just said is really good, it's not colored by seeking. Let's elaborate on that. There's an evolution taking place, but it's not colored by seeking. Go ahead and say more if you'd like.
2: Yeah, you know, when I, when I teach and share, what I try to do is rather than naming what took place within me, I try to describe the nature of then and now, or what was it that changed within me. And when I, when I wrote the book, I mean, going back to those days of TM, remembering that it, early on, you know, I became a spiritual seeker. And I became identified with the idea of being a spiritual seeker. As you know, I was looking for something. And my whole life up until that moment was was very much characterized by an identification with seeking something spiritually. In that moment, if I was to say at the top of my list, what shifted in that moment and that would be that the whole notion of seeking became outdated it became irrelevant the the revealing of life just comes forward and i'm not looking for it in time although i am part of a time space continuum i'm not looking for it to happen at some point in the future or in some other way than it's happening now yeah. I'm evolving and learning all the time, but the nature of it isn't in it's not in looking it's just it's not like that for me anymore i don't have that whatever that was isn't there
0: if you were to talk to somebody who is seeking which you probably do actually in the course of your life, would you tell them to stop seeking? What would you tell them?
2: I would go back to those moments before before things changed for me. Um, I love when bart marshalls his way of describing awakening is that something happened. And, and I like the simplicity of that description. My response to that would be intensify the the seeking. Like I said, um, intensify the desire to find what you're looking for. I don't think you can tell somebody who's seeking to stop seeking. Seeking stops when it stops. It, it's not an effort that a person can just say okay right now I'm going to stop seeking <laughs> and then it goes away i i would never give somebody that guidance i would say seek with all your heart and soul you know whatever it is you're looking for put it at the top of your list and and yearn for it and long for it with all your being but it is a bait and switch it's not as if at some point you know the seeker receives the 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 fruit of that endeavor by saying, okay, oh, now I found it. And now I, as a seeker, have it. You know, the, the whole paradigm of being a seeker falls away. So there's, there's no medal given to you at the end of your journey as a seeker. So I tend to bring that to seeker's attention that it's not what you think it is. And and don't think that your seeking is going to be confirmed or satisfied as a result of some pinnacle experience that, that now makes you a seeker that has been that has found. Um, so I, I, I may potentially bring that to their attention. But I I think the longing particular coming from the bhakti tradition and the yearning for whatever it is you feel is going to make you whole. is is par for the course, is just to intensify that. Ultimately, you realize that it's not going to fulfill you, but until you know that, you don't.
0: I don't know how apt this is, but a simple analogy for the seeking thing might be that you you, you don't tell a hungry person to stop being hungry. Exactly. You you don't just say, you know, give it up. Don't be hungry, it's silly, Uh, (laughs) or some such thing. But after they've eaten then they're not hungry anymore, and it's, not, it's like the hunger just sort of is taken care of by, by the fulfillment of the food. So I would say that someone like yourself, who has undergone a shift and the seeking energy fell away, there's a, some kind of fulfillment that abides now, which wasn't there before, which you naturally sought when it wasn't there. It's, it's natural to want greater happiness, greater contentment, self-awareness, whatever. And uh, when that has been realized then you know it's like turning a, a light on in a dark room uh, you don't have to try to get rid of the darkness it's replaced by a light and is no longer found
2: well said yeah exactly paul hederman says if somebody believes their house to be on fire you, you bring them water <laughs> yeah. another way of saying it for you know from another perspective but yeah very much it's important to honor people where they're at at their journey. And there's there's something, you know, elegant and beautiful about where they're at as well. When I look back on it um, and, and I'm supporting people on that journey, two things come up for me. One is definitely compassion. And the other is humor because, you know, when it breaks, there, there is a quality of humor to it that you took something so seriously. It wasn't even really there. You know, it's it's somewhat funny. But it's not funny to the person struggling with it.
0: Yeah. It's like you know, the old rope and snake analogy. If a if, you know, person is terrified of the snake and, and you know, just their heart is pounding and they're trying to get away from the snake and so on and so forth, and then in a way there's something funny about that because it's really only a rope. But to the person who thinks it's a snake, it's very real and very much a concern.
2: And when they see that it's a rope, they'll laugh. Then they'll hopefully. laugh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah
0: <right. laughs> once their heart sort of settles down.
2: <laughs> yeah, but
0: I know when I when I was in the depth of the
2: intensity of the longing, you know, if somebody would have, you know, reflected back to me that it was actually funny, I wouldn't have been able to see that. There was nothing funny about it.
0: It's kind of interesting when you read the the ancient texts about devotional characters such as Hanuman, uh, such as. Radha and and the Gopis and so on, who, I don't know what their state was supposed to have been in terms of self-realization, but they seem to be pretty powerful beings. I mean, Hanuman was flying around carrying mountains and stuff. (laughs) Not bad. Uh, Yeah. And yet, they, they had still this ardency about them, this sort of, well, you know, maybe it wasn't based on any, let's get into this a little bit. I mean, one is seeking based on an emptiness, you know, and, and a, a, a longing, a, a desire for something, for something out of, we're really suffering actually, and another is a kind of ecstatic devotion. Yes. Maybe not based on weakness or emptiness no. or lack. It's based on a fullness and a foundation of strength that these people had, or monkeys, as the case may be, <laughs> had achieved. But it could be quite a different animal between those two, those two different things.
2: Yeah, that's well put. You know, for me it is. It's a whole different paradigm of practicing bhakti yoga. Prior to, for me, it was trying to, to uh, fulfill a certain emptiness within myself. And now I would characterize it as a celebration. You know, a great metaphor to use is somebody who's single and looking for a partner because they think the partner's gonna bring them the happiness that they don't that they don't have, as opposed to somebody really being strong within themselves and say, Hey, I'd like I'd like to share this with a another person, then the relationship doesn't come forward as a means of lack. Again, I'll use the word celebration. It it comes forward as a celebration of the two joining as one. And even when I sing and chant, you know, my, my bhakti has become that. I sing as a celebration. You think there's this unitive principle that has the potential to express itself in infinite ways. And this being that I look at when I wake up in the morning, in the morning is one of those infinite ways. And then I get to experience that and behold the beauty of that in those other souls that come into my world. And so there's just a beauty with it. And I used to feel interesting when I woke up, there was this inquiry. is will I still have a sense of devotion? Will I still want to be a kirtan singer? Will I still want to sit in front of this image of my guru? Will I still want to sing to Krishna or sing to Kali? Or And what I ultimately found was that, you know, me as a separative being, you know, in my in my uniqueness, there is a devotional nature there, so that devotional nature continues to express itself, but it expresses itself more in the way that you described earlier, not from a place of lack, but from a place of fullness. And it's and it's wonderful, it's rich. When people ask me about my life, I, it, it's rich because there's just so many hues and chords and colors and, and textures to behold every moment of every day.
0: Your friend Shyamdas said, after enlightenment comes devotion.
2: Yeah, yeah. He always would say that. Yeah, he would say that yeah, first you you know, you're enlightened and then and then devotion comes. Yeah. Mm. yeah.
0: Marshi used to say that a small pond can't rise up in big tidal waves. If it does so it'll if it tries to do so it'll just stir up the mud at the bottom. But an ocean can rise up in huge powerful waves without stirring up any mud, so he said we have to become an ocean. In other words, realize the self and then on that foundation that's the beginning of significant possibility for devotion.
2: Yeah, you know, um, Rick, I find devotion, you know, and um, to really come from a place of vulnerability and sensitivity and receptivity, Mm. and I I have found that knowing oneself creates a, a kind of strength that allows you to be receptive and sensitive in a fearless way.
0: That's you beautiful. Know? Yeah. So would you say, like along those lines, that knowing, not knowing oneself you have to remain guarded and Absolutely. You know, protected, whereas knowing oneself you can kind of relax and just let it all flow?
2: Yeah, and and you let it all flow. And sometimes, you know, I'm a musician, I'm an artist. So sometimes that, that shows up is, I just played a great set, and I feel tremendously, you know, confident in what I'm doing. And at other moments, I'm in the studio, and the song's not going well, and I feel a tremendous sense of insecurity about my art. And so you're not having to defend or prop up a, a sense of identity that's fixed. You're just allowing whatever is to arise, and it can be great joy, it could be great pain, it could be great release, uh, um, it could be great holding on, it can be insecure, it can be confidence, it's everything. Mm. I wrote about it in my book, it enables you just to say yes to all of it. I, I often you know, reflect upon, post-awakening because it opens up a whole new door, you know, I haven't gotten to the point where I feel moved to write about it, um, but it certainly doesn't end, you yeah. know, it, it opens up something new. <laughs> I remember Bart Marshall saying he got an email from somebody uh, and uh, in the subject line of the email it said, awake, awakened, now what? Question. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and it's very rich, it's very rich to not, not be bound to an identity, it, it gives you tremendous flexibility to experience so much more.
0: My wife Irene has a question here. She said, Amma once said, crying to God for five minutes is equal to one hour of meditation. If tears are not coming by themselves, try to cry by thinking, why am I not able to cry? Try to develop devotion. It seems like, that was the quote from Amma, then Irene's question, it seems like music is a very good method to develop devotion since it involves so much of the heart or feelings. Are there other methods that David is aware of, or does he feel devotion is either there or it's not?
2: In other words, is the question, you know, different ways to instigate that, that sense yeah, of bhakti? Yeah, can it be evoked, bhakti? you know?
0: So yeah. obviously kirtan is one. You get in a kirtan situation and you really start to move with it.
2: Yeah, you know, that's why I say my job description, you know, if, if you've either fallen asleep or cried or or danced ecstatically, I've done my job well. <laughs> and certainly music and kirtan does evoke what Irene was talking about, that sense of uh, of what I call bhakti tears. But now I experience it in many different ways. And, and I would answer that question by saying, I can't necessarily say that I, I can, I would how would I say, recommend a particular technique, because in my in my current embodiment, that bhakti comes forward in many different ways, but it typically comes forward as a result of an absence of self in moments of deep stillness. I'll give you an example. Um, I could just be sitting in the morning, reading a book, drinking a cup of coffee or looking out my window at the trees swaying in the wind and suddenly just this this sense of awe will come upon me and tears will come. I have a five-year-old daughter and so I can recommend that for anybody who wants to experience bhakti because that's been the greatest bhakti. I'll just be playing with her or she'll be singing in the back of the car and I'll just catch a glance of her maybe from her profile or just my eyes will look into her eyes for a moment and then the wonders of the universe will just come streaming through and the tears will come. Mm -hmm. I was sitting lying on the couch a couple days ago and my nephew who's a Hasidic Jew now sat at the piano and just wanted to share with me some Hebrew prayers and some melodies on the piano and I was just lying down and suddenly although you know I am Jewish though that's not my path And it wasn't even the music, it was just the depths of his passion for his path and his desire to want to communicate the essence of that feeling to me as I behold the beauty of his relationship to Judaism, the tears came. And so for me, it's it's never any more really calculated in terms of a practice or a technique. It's just in those moments of letting myself get still and quiet and letting my heart be vulnerable that those tears come forward.
0: A lot of people who talk of non-duality and, you know, who have awakenings and so on, don't talk a lot about God. Some do. I mean, Ramana often referred to God and, and so on. But then there are some teachers and sages and saints who speak of God consciousness as a definite development that we may eventually undergo, where we really... Come to know God intimately, probably by realizing our essential identity with God. Although there's also the whole issue of actually experiencing God in, to some degree of separation, like devotion to Krishna, seeing Krishna's form, and you know, sort of a personal God kind of thing. But for you, I mean, you've you've kind of in a way you've well, you've all this devotional singing all these years was to some form of God, and. Uh, yet you weren't necessarily experiencing the divinity or divinities that you were singing to. It wasn't a concrete experience, which is more of a feeling and so on. But at, at this stage, and in light of your comment a few minutes ago about post-awakening further development, what, what is your thought about God and the possibility of actually experiencing God in some way much more clearly and richly, rather than just have it, God be a sort of a an intuitive notion, but really some something much more vivid and even even concrete.
2: Yeah, beautiful question. Whew. Uh, well, a couple of things are are coming forward. One is remembering Shamdas, who you mentioned before, who was a great bhakti yogi who died a few years back. And he said, hey, in the English language, there's one word for God, and that's God. He said in Sanskrit, there's like thousands and thousands and thousands of names for the different manifestations and nuances. And, and I would say that that is true. What I just described, you know, the, the sweet, sweetness of the beholding and the richness of the present moment is, is if I had to, how I would define God, um, and I, I do hearken back to Neem Karoli Baba, who we've talked about. You know, he didn't give lectures, he didn't write books, he did, didn't even sing kirtan. You know, He fed people and just exuded this loving presence that people felt drawn to and, um, and enjoyed being in his presence for that reason. But one of the things that he said that sort of stuck in terms of a quote from Neem Karoli Baba was, it's better to see God in everything than to try and figure it out. Mm -hmm. And so for me, you know, to quantize God in one form or one experience um, wouldn't be something that I necessarily gravitate toward. For me is, you know, God is the experience of the present moment as it's constantly revealing and itself and evolving itself and i for me it's 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 uh it's an experiential you know yeah. manifestation and uh it, it's simultaneously timeless because one of the things i shared about my awakening is that you know there's there's you know Prior to awakening, the, the individual awareness is constantly identifying with things out there to try and bind itself to. And when the shift takes place, that awareness kind of retracts back into the spacious awareness that doesn't drift. It doesn't go back and forth. It clicks into place, for lack of a better description. And, and it just remains there. And it's invitational by nature. So for me, God is really a verb. It's the uh, the spacious awareness, and then it's everything that's arising and receding from that awareness. So it would be very hard for me to to communicate my relationship to the word God as a noun. I mm-hmm. just wouldn't be able to do it.
0: Well, I often say this, but I just want to say it again, <laughs> and that is that just because we don't. Ex- Experience something doesn't mean it's not there, and we go through life, you know, la di da, doing this, doing that. But if we if we actually think about for a moment what science tells us about what's actually going on in front of our eyes, it's pretty amazing. I mentioned the last couple of weeks that in a single grain of sand, there's more atoms than there are in the entire than there are stars in the entire universe mm. that we know of, and in a sing, there's 100 trillion cells in the human body and each cell is is, is as complex as um, as Tokyo you know there's a, so there's this amazing dance of life going on that that if we actually don't take it for granted and think about it for a moment displays unfathomably vast intelligence and there's a word panentheism which means that the divine or god or, or the divine intelligence completely permeates everything and really is everything. There's nothing other than that um, kind of operating within itself and orchestrating everything. And yet we don't ordinarily perceive life that way. We just sort of go along. But I'm wondering about the potential of perceiving life that way and, and actually in one's ordinary day-to-day activities being not only established in the self or pure awareness or you know, a sort of an unmanifest phase of uh, dimension of, of life, but through the senses, through the intellect, through all of our experiential capacity as a human being, being appreciative, fully appreciative of the miracle mm. that is all around us and within us, and that to really me would be God yeah, God, God, consciousness or something
2: that I very much that was beautiful, and I very much resonate with that. You know, when I when I do share through my teachings, one of the first things I say about the nature of awakening is that it's not an experience. Because so much from the paradigm of the seeker, one is looking for a spiritual experience and then comparing everything to it as not being spiritual. So... When the shift takes place and the nature of the awareness isn't experiential, then all all experience, everything that you were talking about, everything that comes through in the intellect and the emotions and body sensations, the coming and goings, the textures of life, it's all one infinite spiritual experience because, you know, you're not comparing it to something that the mind has categorized as spiritual, so it all becomes God in that, in that regard. And, and to me, you know, that's the higher paradigm of practicing Bhakti Yoga.
0: So we're, we're going to stick in more, a few more songs in this interview, is there anything that comes to mind that we have um, been talking about that would warrant a particular song?
2: Yeah, you know, I wrote an entire album that that is sort of centered around my awakening and a lot of the songs that were written, as I recall, were written prior to the breakthrough that I had. Mm -hmm. And so, and it was really amazing process because a lot of the songs I wrote were written from the awake perspective. However, I was still sort of struggling with it. I was still wrestling with it. One of the things I found and have really enjoyed as part of my spiritual path in terms of being an artist is that a lot of the times through the songs or the poems that you write, you're sort of foretelling where your consciousness is going to be at some point in the future because, you know, the art. The inspiration is already there, but you are not. Right. And so a lot of the songs that I wrote on Love is Awake are are kind of about that. So one of writing those songs really helped me in a lot of ways. And one of the songs I wrote was a song called Shift. And rather than making it totally a personal song, I wrote that song about the shift that's that's taking place on our planet. And environmentally, globally, socially, and also personally, I kind of wrapped it up all into a song and called it Shift. The chorus of that song is: um, it goes, um, a shift in perspective in the collective, a shift in consciousness, a shift in direction and in perception. Do you feel the shift? And then we made a a video um, using a bunch of uh, footage from the the Occupy movement. And so it'd be a great time to uh, share that song.
0: Great, let's play that now.
3: A shift from fear to love The dream that we've dreamed of A shift from suffering to joy In a world we won't destroy A shift in perspective In the collective A shift in consciousness Shift in direction and in perception Do you feel like this? I feel a shift I feel a shift I feel a shift I feel a a shift and greed to caring for all those in need a shift from destruction and war to a peace that will endure a shift in perspective in the collective shifting shift in consciousness in direction and in perception Do you feel like this? I feel ashamed From injustice and lies to a conscience that won't compromise a shift from the shackles that bind to freedom for all mankind A shift in perspective in the collective shifting consciousness, shift in direction and in perception, do you feel like this, cause I feel the shift
0: As someone who's kind of out there interacting with the spiritual community, you may be more tuned in to the shift that is taking place than people whose primary source of information is the six o'clock news. Are you optimistic um, and hopeful given the interactions you've been having with spiritually inclined people around the country, around the world? And do you see an evolution of that? Like, is it a lot better now than it was 15 years ago?
2: Yeah, well, you know, there's definitely a discrepancy between when I put on the news and see what's being reported and the the bhakti yogic bubble that I live in, because, you know, that's what I do. I'm invited to play at festivals, conferences, yoga centers, yoga schools, and it is a bit of a buffered world all that said, I, you know, I feel like, let's call that, you know, a tent of beings who are really looking to make a positive difference in the world and within themselves. And I, and I have seen, you know, that community grow and grow and grow and grow, you know, exactly how that will influence the the greater whole. I don't know. And I don't think about it that much because, you know, ultimately it's, That part of it's out of my control. I know that I can do what I do within my own self and to affect and share what I have to give with others. And there are so many people that are deeply enthusiastic to share what they found with others. And it's like a baton, you know, it just keeps on is spreading out and i've also you know i don't feel 52 but i am 52 which means i'm now starting to see some of like my godson is a, a vedic uh, astrologer my nephew and i was just at a festival called love light and you know my my little guy you know who i've known since he was born is now sitting at a booth doing you know vedic astrology readings for i mean he was packed the entire time people would come from his booth and say Oh my God! Your nephew is incredible, you know, and so my perception of him is changing, and I have other people in my life that I've known since they've been younger, and now they're out there teaching yoga or now they're out there being spiritual life coaches, or now they're out there being healers and meditation teachers, and so that is deeply gratifying to see that there's a groundswell of beings. I somewhat came to this early on in life, but a lot of these kids started from birth being exposed to kirtan and meditation and things of that nature and it's just it's just in their being and in their cells and so what i'm driving at is i'm very hopeful and and i and i do get to see how things are growing you know going you know take a festival like love light or bhakti fest and you know you have you know at bhakti fest you have like four or five thousand people coming To chant with you, you know, and you have people that are expressing kirtan, you know, as, you know, folk rock or R&B or jazz or rap and traditional. And so you have a dissemination of this vibration that's really rolling out into the world and exactly how it will merge with the overall, you know, the gestalt consciousness of our planet. It's definitely positive. What exactly that means? I don't have a crystal ball, but, you know, I'm in. (laughs) <laughs> yeah.
0: Do you know Chris Grosso?
2: The name sounds incredibly familiar.
0: Yeah. I've, I've interviewed him, he's friends with Adam Bucko and others and whom, whom I've interviewed, and he has some kind of a spiritual hip-hop thing going. That, that I can't... think
2: I've been exposed to him because his name sounds familiar.
0: Yeah, he lives up in Connecticut. Well, I mean, I mean you know as well as I do, perhaps better, that um, No Man Is An Island. We're not isolated and our influence isn't limited to the people with whom we directly interact, but it it permeates and pervades and radiates out uh, through the field to the whole world. And so personally I think that this sort of um, growing interest that you described in this sort of thing is not just sort of limited to what sociologists might understand uh, as its influence, but is sort of radiating and enlivening the world consciousness and that all sorts of shifts and changes and, and upliftment will be taking place. And and it's, it's sort of both the chicken and the egg here. It's, it's both cause and effect. I mean, the fact that it's becoming more popular is because the field is getting more lively. And the more people who get on board and participate in it, the more lively the field gets.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, as a musician, I don't always necessarily get to have direct contact with the people that are listening to and being affected by the music that I make. But I was teaching at Esalen last year and a woman came up to me and said, you know, I am a a medical doctor and I work in an emergency room. And the way I find my sustenance and peace is listening to music on the car ride from home to the hospital. Speaking about those younger generation, I was just having lunch with a younger friend of mine, and she's a yoga teacher. She 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 said, "Do you know this person?" I said, "Yeah, I'm aware of him because he's the president of Live Nation, which is you know like the largest concert promoting company in the entire world." And she said, "Well, you know, I'm teaching him yoga now, and uh, and the other morning during my private yoga session, I uh, I gave him a Dharma talk, and he was really receptive to it." And so, what happens is you have all these healers and teachers and musicians that are affecting people that are that are aren't necessarily the ones that are coming to the festivals or not, but they're they're getting it in some way and they're bringing it into corporate settings and hopefully into political settings and into industry in ways that we are totally unaware of. I mean, in November, I'm I'm doing a two-week tour of. Uh, with this foundation called the Call and Response Foundation. uh, And their whole mission is to bring chanting and mantra music to places that wouldn't ordinarily be exposed to it. So we're doing a two-week tour of prisons, psychiatric hospitals, hospice centers, recovery centers, And, you know, that's the whole point. And I'm not the only one doing this. You know, there's people teaching yoga. And you mentioned this, I believe, in the beginning of our interview, you know, children being taught meditation. So there's definitely an infiltration that's happening. And no man is an island, like you said. And what I'm really finding is this sense of community is really becoming, you know, so deeply important you know you look at some gurus that have left that ha- they haven't really left successors like Swami Satchidananda or you know I was akashi Kashi Jaya didn't leave a successor and you know a lot of it's become about us as a community you know taking these teachings that have now become rooted in us and as a community bringing this into the world.
0: Thich Han said the next Buddha is the Sangha or he said maybe the Sangha and um you know, there, there does seem to be this sort of egalitarian thing going on where, you know, the less hierarchical, where, where there's just sort of this groundswell of awakening and people are just enlivening each other. I remember when I was a kid I uh, saw this science show on TV one time where they had all these mouse traps set up in a room and ping-pong balls on each mousetrap, ping-pong ball on each mousetrap. And it was meant to, to demonstrate nuclear fusion or fission. Uh, but anyway, they, they set off one of the mousetraps and the ping-pong ball went set off other mousetraps and the whole thing just sort of kept going. Sure. <laughs> so I think there's some kind of mousetrap, ping-pong ball effect going on in the world, <laughs> this whole spiritual thing.
2: It is, and, and what's interesting is there's so many people really, I'll, I'll tell you, Rick, right when I wrote the, my book, Time-Bound Traveler. I literally wrote it in five days. I hardly slept. I hardly ate. And I'm not much of a writer in that way, but it was a story that wanted to be told. And I basically was at my computer for almost 20 hours a day. So I wrote I wrote the book. And I decided I wanted to call it The Time-Bound Traveler. And then this tag phrase came to me because it really communicated the nature of of what I was writing. And the tagline of the book was, how my journey as a seeker came to an end. And so, as I was basically done writing, I thought, well, that's a really bold statement to put on the cover of a book. And I I very, very rarely watch TV. We have a TV in our basement. It's one of those old box TVs. And so I was so like in a zone from writing, I thought I need to put on the television set. That's what I need right now. So I walked in the basement, I put on the TV and there was Barbara Walters and she was interviewing Carlos Santana just at that moment. Moments later, he was talking about spirituality and where the world is at now and the Woodstock generation or whatever, you know, all his peers. And he said to her, he said, you know, we were seekers, but we've become finders.
0: Nice. Perfect.
2: And it There's was a synchronicity a, for it. it was a, It was a total synchronicity. But, you know, so many of this young generation is they're not looking in the same way that that we were. You know, they they have this you know, I've never gotten into this person's awake, that person's not awake, I've never engaged that, that's never been part of my thing, whether they're awake or not, but they carry something, these younger generations, there's, there's a knowing that they walk with, and they're bringing it forward, and what I've noticed within, within them is, rather than like having a, a guru necessarily, they're kind of there for each other, and they learn by sharing notes with each other, Mm-hmm. and that's how they're bringing it forward and, and and it's really nice for me now you know to sort of be somewhat of an elder you know I'll continue to become more of an elder but to see these younger generations making such a huge change and difference in the world that's what makes me very very hopeful
0: yeah me too and it's a topic I do like to bring up from time to time because um you know personally I've been at this since I was 18 years old and I'm 66 now and and the the, the sort of change the world fervor of the sixties is still very much in my blood. And I like to put in this note of optimism because I think just as we were talking earlier about people who are sort of going through intense stuff might be encouraged to know that there's help and that something good might be happening and that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. I think people who are sort of potentially depressed about the world situation, I mean I've heard people talk about global warming and, and you know, say they they just want to commit suicide because they feel we're all doomed and we're all going to die and this and that. And I really think that there's very clear potential, if not almost likelihood, of a a much brighter outcome. How it's specifically going to come about, what technologies are going to manifest to make it possible to reverse the dangerous trends that you know we see in the world, we don't know. But I'm getting a little long winded here. But I, I think that like for instance Elon Musk is a meditator uh, sure and and he's got this building the world's biggest factory in Nevada which is going to generate build these batteries and he's going really big into solar production and and you know aspiring to get us off oil and he has the capability to actually do it and that's just one example so the, I think that as consciousness rises technologies will come forward which may have seemed impossible to us, I mean, some of the today's technology seemed impossible 30 years ago, and uh, they could really turn things around and, and we could, within our lifetimes, see a very bright and, and a beautiful world.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I think that's the real medicine of the awakened consciousness, as another one of my favorite Ramana Maharshi quotes is, don't try to put leather cover the world in leather just put on a pair of shoes yeah and you know in my tradition you know having a relationship with neem karoli baba it 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 it, you know in our tradition it's not just about the devotion but it's about utilizing the devotion or i would say also the stillness as a means to really finding clarity as to what is your unique individual service to humanity and so rather than, you know, speculating global warming is going to do must, I mean, we don't know what the future holds and in a lot of way that's a great distraction. I think what's a greater use of our energies and our life force is to really find that sense of clarity and devotion and stillness and quiet to find out, well, how, you know, how is it that you're here to be an agent of change? how does that look paul hederman called says what is your seat assignment mm-hmm. and you know your seat assignment your dharma, com- your dharma. it comes as a result of a, of an inner prompting it's not something that someone else tells you and so I, I think as we have more people living in that state of stillness and that meditative clarity and being rooted in that sense of devotion the more helpers there's going to be to effectuate a greater a greater change on the planet
0: yeah and some of those help helpers maybe vendors of solar technologies, or you know, others may just be strictly in a spiritual mode. But to each his own.
2: Well, exactly. Yeah, they could be a kirtan singer or CEO of a company. What does it matter? As long as they, as long as their hearts in the right place, they have that intention.
0: So, is, is there anything we haven't covered that you feel like you'd, you'd like to throw in here? people to know about you, about anything else, either in terms of your own experience, your own life, philosophical insights, or in terms of what you're doing, what you're planning. Well I wanted to ask you actually, you mentioned you are going to do that thing in November where you're in prisons and mental hospitals and hospices and things, and I think you've already done some of that. What has been your experience in those places?
2: You can't imagine, particularly um, sharing mantras and music in a prison i literally to this day have not received a a more grateful enthusiastic group of people than playing in a prison the light on inmates faces when they have an opportunity just to be vulnerable and to sing and to listen and to receive the gift of of the practice it's it's extraordinary And also the younger generations. I was on tour in Atlanta several months ago, and I was it. It, I, I, it was like a, um, a psychiatric. Uh, they don't. Li- I, the kids didn't live there, but they spent lots of time there. You know, the teens who were having psychiatric issues.
1: Right.
2: You know, who came and chanted with me and listened. I gave a little mini Dharma talk. It, it, it's incredible. It's so deeply gratifying, and it, it makes you. Sad in a certain way, because you realize in those moments that if these children or if these inmates were exposed to something like this, you know, on a regular basis, if this was part of their curriculum or part of their therapy or part of their nourishment or part of their growth, it would just make for a very different uh, society that we lived in so um it's it's incredibly gratifying i just wish that there could be more of it within the system you know in all these situations typically what happens is you have an administrator who's somehow sympathetic to spirituality who says yeah come on in and you know and sing kirtan in prison or come on in and you know Give a give a talk about meditation to my children, but in some of those places, it's just simply not welcome. So there's just the hope that there's more of that.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe somebody listening to this um, might be in a position to help introduce it, you know, and you, you could go in there.
2: And let me say this, Rick, uh, because we're actually arranging the tour right now mm-hmm. and the woman Jen from Call and Response Foundation has a lot of venues that she, it's a two week tour that she's already booking, mm-hmm. but we're open. So if anybody knows of hospice care centers, rehabilitation, recovery, psychiatric prisons on that, we're doing it all along the East Coast,
0: okay.
2: uh, they may be interested, you know, have them get in touch with me yeah. or, or whoever and we can add them to our list of uh, stops.
0: Veterans' uh, homes Veterans come to too, mind yeah. also.
2: Very much so, yeah.
0: And we're recording this at the end of August, 2016. So if you're listening to this in two years, you still get in touch with Dave because I'm sure he'll be up <laughs> to something good then. But you know, yeah, for sure. now, get in touch immediately if if this is a you know something you could do. Um, here's a question that came in from Din. It looks like Robinson in Ottawa. It Might be Dan. Might be a typo. But Dinner Dan in Ottawa, Canada. David just said. Awakening is not an experience, but for me, it is a very crisp experience. It's the experience of being aware of your thoughts, of being a separate somebody who exists in time and space, as opposed to being totally identified with those thoughts. I would be interested in his comment on this.
2: Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Dan or Din, um, for the question. Yeah. Awakening itself, the reason I say it isn't an experience, is very simple because experiences come and go. I remember I was I was offering a talk at a yoga festival in, in Floyd, Virginia, and somebody said, well, you know, I, I was speaking about the shift in consciousness that is not subject to going in the other direction. That it's consistently present, and I and I don't know where I came how this came forward. But I said, it's like putting eggs in a cake. Once you bake the cake, the eggs are gone forever. How do you know that? It's just, you know that, that that you're not going to get the eggs back in the shell. It's just (laughs) the nature of the thing itself. So a lot of times, you know, people will say something like this to me, and it can happen often in the kirtan setting, because you go to a kirtan and you have this pinnacle climax experience where you're feeling tremendous bliss and then suddenly you walk out the door, and the next morning your leg hurts, and your boss yells you. And you say, "Well, I lost that experience. I somehow have to get it back." And and you're back on that sort of that uh, dualistic treadmill. For me, when a shift took place, there was something that arose that I that it, it's not experiential by nature because I'm not in relationship to it. That's the only thing it gives rise to. And I said this earlier in the discussion, it gives rise to a much richer and wider spectrum of experience, but the thing itself isn't experiential because I'm not in relationship with it, it doesn't come and go, I can't hold on to it, I can't let go of it. So it's my way of communicating the nature of the thing itself in a way that's going to sort of deprogram the seeker from thinking that somehow they're going to find that pinnacle experience, that that expansive moment in meditation or that blissful joy in kirtan, and suddenly they're just going to be able to hold it in their arms forever. It's not that. So that's when I say it's not experiential. That's the reason. But I would agree with you in that I'm agreeing with the the inquirer, that it does give rise to infinite possibilities in in regard to experience and makes those experience because nothing's sticking, it's just sort of flowing through, coming and going. It gives rise to a greater sense of sensory experience as a human being.
0: Greater capacity for depth of experience, perhaps, or clarity of experience, or fullness of experience.
2: Yeah, capacity would be a good word.
0: Ramana was famous for always saying that, you know, that which comes and goes isn't it. You know, someone would come to him, like Papaji came to him and talked about his experiences with Krishna. And, and Ramana said, well, is he here now? And he said, no. Uh, then that's not it. You know, it's yeah. a, <laughs> what it is, is is not something that comes and goes. I mean, there's that verse in the Gita, uh-oh, I'm quoting the Gita, which yeah, that's is... Okay. A, the unreal has no being, the real never ceases to be. Sure. So what we're talking about here is the real, and it, it never ceases to be. So one more exactly. thing I'll throw in, Ken Wilber talks about states and stages, another way of explaining it. Uh, stages have a stable implication, states you know, have a state of bliss here, a state of sadness there, you know, th- those things come and go, but I, I guess we could say that stages can change too, you can go from this stage to the next stage, but they tend to be more sort of stable.
2: Exactly, yeah. That's the distinction that I was
0: drawing. Good. Okay. So, um, I think I'll have you take us out with a song, but let's uh, just sort of make a few concluding remarks, and you can make some rec- concluding remarks if you have any. Do you have any to begin with?
2: Well, I feel a lot of gratitude for the invitation. I've really enjoyed our uh, discussion—it's—it's it's, uh, affirming and, and enjoyable. And for all those who are watching live and who will watch it sometime in the future, thanks for being a part of this. I appreciate it. I feel I like wanna, we have covered a lot of interesting ground.
0: I think we have. I want to say thanks to Irene too because she kept she chooses the guests, you know, and schedules the guests, and uh, she kept bringing you up. She said kept looking at your website, saying, "I like this guy. He's—he's he's pretty cool. We should interview him." So I'm really glad that she found you and I guess a few people recommended you and that's how it came to her attention.
2: And Irene and I have had a few communications, so thank you Irene, appreciate it.
0: David says thank you Irene. Thank you, yeah. She's shrugging her shoulders like (laughs) (laughs) that. Right on. Okay, so uh, let me just make some concluding remarks. Uh, This as I mentioned in the beginning is an ongoing series, most of you know that and I intend to keep doing it for the rest of my functional life, as, as things look now. <laughs> Hopefully that will be long. There are 360 of them or 365 or something so far, and if you go to the Past Interviews menu under, at batgap.com, you'll find them organized in several different ways. This also exists as an audio podcast, so if you like to listen while you're commuting or something, you can subscribe to that on iTunes or Stitcher. And incidentally, um, it's it's actually helpful for the popularity of it on iTunes and Stitcher and things like that if you leave a little review. So if you can figure out how to do that and say, hey, I like this podcast, give it five stars or whatever. Or this podcast sucks, give it one star, whatever, <laughs> whatever you feel motivated to do. If you leave something on there, it's somehow... It's like the search engine value of, of iTunes it takes notice more readily and brings it to more people's attention. So that's just a little something. As I mentioned in the beginning, uh, you know this is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners. So if you feel like supporting it, there's the donate button on badcap.com. I always like to mention to check out the menus on Backyard because there's some things there that I don't feel like saying every time I do an interview. But if you poke around, you'll find them, and you might find them useful or interesting. So thanks, and um, thanks to you again, David. I've really enjoyed this conversation.
2: Me too, Rick. And I would like to conclude by just sharing. Are, are we going to end with an, another video? Is that? Yeah, the idea? you can.
0: You say whatever you want to say now, and then set it up, and we'll play that video.
2: Okay. Because one thing I wanted to mention was, you know, prayer is an interesting word. And so many people give different meanings to prayer, whether we're praying to someone or something else or whether it's just a just residing in the stillness of being and engaging somebody we love who's going through a difficult time, whatever. But I've always find that and I continue to find that that that, that prayerful state that comes forward in my being is a texture that's deeply important to me in my journey. Mm. And, and it's a way for me to care for others in my life, particularly when I'm not with them in the physical sense. Yeah. I wrote a song some years ago because uh, a very dear friend of mine, a very gifted guitar player, was very sick and ended up passing. He died at a young age of cancer. And when I was really feeling for him, I wrote a song called Thinking of You. And it's a song that I play live often as a means to invite the group to pray for others in their lives. And it's also one of my most popular pieces and a piece of music that really seems to stir people and touch people in their hearts. And I made a video um, of it with my wife Mira and daughter Tulsi in it. And we shot it with a beautiful director in California. And I thought that could be a sweet way to end our talk. This song is called Thinking of You.
0: Great. Well, thanks. Let's play that now.
3: Open your heart. Let the light of the world shine through you. The greatest of joy is to
1: see you in me, in me. Be bold, be free, be beautiful
3: Believe, be love, be true to you As far and wide
1: Remember there's someone who's thinking of you We're all thinking of you